be Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm with Falcon Slam Falcon Screen, and we're joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. I'm in the circle of life. Which will come very relevant in a moment. And uh, our resident, I don't know, Timon, Chris Evans, Sydney filmmaker. Hey, man, everyone knows I'm the pombo around here. Excuse me, you, you, when, when Chris was a young warthog, he had some wild times. That's right. That's right. Who would I be? I would be Rafiki. No, I'd be Zazu. <laughs> yes, he would be Zazu. Come on, you, 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 you kind of look like John Oliver right now, right? You can play Zazu in the next Lion King live action remake that we'll be talking about later in the show. Yes, you will. I, I can't imagine Glenn being eaten by people, though. I mean, he's too, he's too sweet to be eaten. No, but he always, he always almost gets eaten, but it gets away. That's the Zazu thing. That's oh, yeah. The, yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't sing the morning report because it's a terrible song. I should never have been in the re-release or whatever. But like Zazu, I, I have discriminating taste. Speaking of which, later in the program, we'll be talking about Mulan. Yes, Disney's latest live-action spectacular. <laughs> yes. yes. We are excited to speak about it, but not about this movie. Let's just preface our discussion with that. Let's be talking about a little bit about Anola Holmes, which is on Netflix now, and The Secret Garden, which is in cinemas. Yeah. First, though, a little bit of film news, what is happening about town. Um, a Night of Horror, International Film Festival wrapped, which is exciting. It is the first full festival to wrap in person at the Actors Center in Leichhardt. Congratulations to A Night of Horror and for coming back after hiatus since 2017. The Italian Film Festival is on now until the October 18th at Palace Cinemas. Philharmonic Melbourne, Melbourne Short Film Night is happening literally right now. So when you finish, if you're listening live, eight, you can hop onto Philharmonic and see their live stream. Look them up on Facebook. Film O-N-I-K. The Nintendo Documentary Film Festival having a couple of events of the course of the week as our fantastic film festival Australia and Cinema Reborn which is starting events at the Ritz in the coming days Static Vision are going into week 27 of screenings on Friday night and SF3 is happening next weekend the gala finals you can get, still get tickets over at event cinemas plus Kino Sydney are going into Kino 154 which is happening on October 12th so you still have time to organize some flicks and get those in before we get into the film news of the week I want to talk about some semi-related art news in that there is an exhibit from probably my second favorite artist which chris had the exhibit is probably the wrong word yeah chris, pleasure of attending this? yes the the pleasure you may have seen advertised the van gogh alive exhibition some of the more discriminating or smarter amongst you might have looked at this and gone okay this is just going to be crass commercialism and a money trap, and I'm going to avoid it, thinking that you'd rather go and see the actual Van Gogh paintings. And if that's what you were thinking, then congratulations, you're right. But myself and a bunch of other people never thought that it would be a replacement for the, the real paintings, but thought it might have been- Not Amsterdam and damn, I, I, yeah, it's far away, but it's, it's, it's not. Yeah, I thought this could still be pretty cool. I thought the concept of you being surrounded by very large scale projections of his paintings, it, it sounds like it could at least be interesting and fun. And I expected maybe really high resolution projections so you could get up close and see the brush strokes and appreciate the paintings in a different kind of way. What it actually is, is a very low resolution. We're talking at some points you can actually see large pixels very low resolution on very low grade, not quite bright enough projectors, PowerPoint presentation. One of, the, one of those like cubic projectors? Are we looking at like that level of like homemade cubic projectors? Just... It's above a projector that you're going to see in a workplace. 
but it's not as good as a cinema projector, not nearly. So it's a bunch of those synced up with a bunch of tacky music cues projecting essentially a PowerPoint presentation. We're talking crappy 90s clip art and video effect graphics placed over Van Gogh's paintings, ruining any level of appreciation. Yeah, it's it's ruining any appreciation you might have had of his actual brushstrokes and his actual work. So, oh, you th- you like the shimmering effect on Starry Nights on the Rhone? We can do better. Imagine if Van Gogh had access to PowerPoint effects. He could have just, instead of simulating this natural phenomenon, just placed a bunch of crappy CG wavy effects all over the bottom half of the painting. That'll definitely improve it. This thing like is we just be going to watch the Doctor Who episode from season five with Matt, with Matt Smith. Yeah. And there's that nice loving Vincent well, film from a couple of years ago. Well, a friend of mine expected this to be of the loving Vincent level of quality when they read about the animations, that this would be some spectacle, a tribute to Van Gogh with really detailed animations. Man, if only. This thing is more on the level of taste. It's a 42-minute loop, right? Wow. Okay, spoiler alert. At the end, they... Uh, you know what happens they... to Van Gogh, Matt? <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. When they show Van Gogh's final painting... He um, chopped his ear off. You, the, no, it was before that. Showing the field. Um, because of Van Gogh's suicide, shooting himself in a field, you get to hear a gunshot and then animated crappy crows fly off across all the screens around the room. This thing is so goddamn tasteless in the way that it exploits the mental illness and suicide angle well, of anger. Is there at least a trigger warning or a content warning for that? No, no trigger warning, no content warning. Whenever they show Van Gogh portraits, because of this thing is playfully arranged over multiple screens, it's always cut off. So his ear, is the ear on the portraits is in one screen, cut off from the rest of the face. Get it? Get it? Um, God, okay. All of the paintings are on screen for like, a few seconds maximum, so you can never soak it up and appreciate it. It's not what I thought it would be. It's probably not what you think it w- it's going to be if you're in any way excited or have been caught by the media hype. Strongest recommendation, do not give them your money. It's tasteless, it's awful. It's strange. It reminds me, again, I referenced the Doctor Who episode where they said it a year before his death when he was in a bit of a downward spiral, but he was still very much more active producing his art. I think that was a very tasteful way of handling a very difficult history, which um, people speculate a lot about, but isn't actually as well documented as I think a lot of exhibits like this and a lot of me surrounding Van Gogh would like to have us think. Um, I was looking forward to it, but I might give this a miss. We literally had a farewell for a friend who's going to Amsterdam last night and was just like, yeah, just go to the exhibit there. And yes, everyone can go and I prefer if there was a tour, like there was the Rembrandt Mm. tour at the art gallery a couple of years ago. That was incredible. I haven't gone to the Archibald yet. I'm going to. It has to be better. Go to AGNSW, go to the Archibald. Do not go to Van Gogh Alive. The less said, the better. So there's lots of really cool free art galleries that like Sheffer, Duck, Rabbit, a few that are opening up for the first time since March. They have great exhibits. Go to those. Yeah. My alternative recommendation, it's a bit hard to get to because of COVID distancing at the moment, but on the top level of White Rabbit, there is an incredible multi-screen video art. It also runs 40 minutes, but it's much higher resolution, much better use of the multiple screens. And and artistically, yeah. And it's artistically mind-blowing. So go and see the Bitcoin mining film on the top level of White Rabbit instead. On White Rabbit, Judith Nelson's exhibit is one of the best Chinese art exhibits in the world. The And Now exhibit, which is on now, is spectacular. There's a beautiful piece called The Ship of Time, where you walk through and you can see the artist's name scrawl on each piece of paper as you go through this giant cone-type structure. There's an amazing Hall of Flags exhibit. Um, yeah, just go to White Rabbit if you haven't. And even if you have, there's a new exhibit and they're all good. Yeah. 
yeah so that, that's our slight divergence into um it is fine. related stuff uh, related to film though because very much the, so yeah the, the, yeah, the film on level three multi-sensory exhibits mm. a white rabbit on the top floor there's yeah. a dedicated we went there we actually didn't get to the film because it was too big a line yeah that's but, what i was um, saying it's on level three of right rabbit it might be hard to get to because it's um not many people are allowed in because of covid rules but they're very strictly enforcing covid yeah requirements. i would rank this short uh 40 something minute film playing upstairs as one of the best films i've seen this year the filmmaking is incredible. If you've got upstairs White Rabbit, go into the library there and have a chat to Philomena, the curator, who's amazing. And you might meet the dog. Yeah, there's a couple. They're lovely. <laughs> yeah. So uh, back to film. Uh, we promised before we get into the reviews, we also want to touch on news that just broke this morning. Very weird news in the realm of Disney. And that is that Barry Jenkins is directing, uh, believe it or not, The Lion King 2 for Disney. Okay, it sounds like it's a prequel, but who wants to see a movie about like Mufasa? It's such a, a dumb idea. I think maybe they don't want to get into the whole thing of like, but some people love The Lion King too because they grew up with it. So we don't want to uncanon it or It's whatever. not a good movie. I know, I know. It's but, but all the sequels are bad. Yeah, it's directed video crap. But Ooh. why is... <laughs> they are bad. They're, all the sequels are bad. Even the Timon Pumat Lion King number three, which was like just harmless fun, was bad. Why is Barry Jenkins wasting his time on this? He just did if Bill Street could talk, right? And it's just sad to see people sell out to the Disney machine. This, especially for something as uninteresting sounding as a Mufasa prequel. I'm sure he's going to bring some interesting direction and some beautiful visuals. But man, I feel like this is going to bomb. I feel like a lot of people didn't like the Lion King live action despite it making a lot of money. The art direction and actually have characters emote like they do in other Barry Jenkins movies. We would like that but that would have to be a fundamental core part of it. I don't know if Disney are ready for that shift. I don't think they will. I mean, I mean even, even like, you know, indie directors with critical appreciation need a paycheck. So, you know, it's, it's not. No, but the thing is, well, he, he does, does he? some, yeah, does he? Like, I know Doing this is, yeah, I know this is the market in which we find ourselves. It's just that there are so many things he could have done instead that I think would have been more interesting and fulfilling. It's just really a shame. Well, we will review it when it happens whenever it happens. But for the moment on Netflix, we have Enola Holmes starring Millie Bobby Brown of Stranger Things fame, Helena Bonham Carter, Henry Cavill, and one of my favorite underrated actors, Sam Claffin. And that is streaming now on Netflix. And Verot, you've seen it. Yeah. Actually also produced by Millie Bobby Brown. So I think uh, she really- Good on her. 16 producing big Netflix feature yeah, movies. Wow, I, I, I was not doing that at 16. It's based on a, a book by Nancy Springer called The Enola Holmes Mysteries, The Case of the Missing Marquess. So apparently this is a whole series of Enola Holmes Mysteries, and this might be just the first out of many, uh, depending on how we can go about it. The long and short of it is that Enola Holmes is a younger sister uh, of the famous two brothers that we already know, Sherlock Holmes and Mycroft Holmes. Sherlock is played by Henry Cavill and Mycroft is played by Sam Claflin. And they are famous and they're already doing their own things. But Enola is a younger sister who's being brought up basically in seclusion from the rest of the world as a wild child described in, in the book by her mother, Helena Bonham Carter. It's basically a mother-daughter duo. There's nobody else. It's like the bad final episode there. of Sherlock. Yes essentially, and uh, they're doing their own things. And then one day, suddenly, mysteriously, her mother disappears. So it is a mystery quest for Enola to find her mother. She tries to enlist her brothers and to get their help, but it's an estranged family relationship. They don't really get along with each other. 
and they're not interested. Sherlock is busy with his cases. Mycroft is busy doing Mycrofty things. So she has. She's... Mycroft was always smarter than Sherlock. That's one of the Actually, things. Actually, yes. Series okay, right. this brings me to my first major gripe with the film because Mycroft is played by Sam Claflin, who's now the favorite evil guy in Hollywood, aka the Nightingale in previous films, where he seems to just now thrive in playing the villain or basically Satan incarnate. They have very much repositioned or reappraised Mycroft's character to be extremely evil and unkind and completely an arsehole in this film without for no reason he hasn't got any civility from the books if you remember yes he he was a traditionalist but he didn't come across as such an evil guy as he does in this actor assassination yeah pretty much so and maybe because it's played by Sam Claflin it is also amped up it's doing his same shtick of Oh, look at me. I am, the, I am the guy who has all the power. I'm the guy in the government. I know how to do things. You don't know nothing, young child. So it, it, Girl. Yeah, pretty much. But that's all hyped up. It's very silly, like Henry Cavill and that's was it Stardust. Yeah. It's that, it's that sort of, oh, look, I'm here and I'm British and I have a moustache and I'm going to go around and solve mysteries. But, oh, I don't care about my silly little sister. She'll, she'll get along fine, won't she? Well, I, I like the angle that, well, but technically how it's established that Enola is also a genius is that she's a fan of cryptic crosswords and wordplays and Enola spelled backwards is alone. So, nah. AKA, oh, that's, that's she's deep. Being left alone by her family deep. and her brother. It's like Neo in the one. Yes. <laughs> yes, pretty much. It, it's just bad, mm. but cleverer, I guess. <laughs> like, look at how Slightly clever. I'll give them that. You know what would be what would be really good for Matrix if it's going to be a reboot of sorts, right? If we have like whatever the new Agent Smith is, and they're like going through data of all the names of all the new babies, and like in a phone book or something, and then they're like, "Hang on, hang on," when they see Neo, but his name is actually Thomas Anderson, wasn't it? Thomas Anderson, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if his name was actually Neo, we could have had like the agents doing like crossing it out and like putting a drawing a question mark on on a phone book. It made something that I think I wanted to see. I called Paul, and then it'll be Paul Thomas Anderson, and that's what is the big reveal. <laughs> yep, because it was June. So, oh god, the June trailer looks kind of bland. Anyway, so this this movie. Getting back to Nola Holmes, yeah. Just to wrap it up, there is an angle. It's set in the backdrop of the suffragette movement where women are getting the vote. So there is a feminist angle. Like the other decent episode of Sherlock. Yes, exactly. So I feel like Sherlock it's that. Stuff here. And uh, there is an interesting angle in, in, in this one where Sherlock's position as a man is basically questioned quite interestingly. That's probably the best angle in this whole story that because he's a guy and he always claims to be apolitical that politics doesn't interest me. There is a thing that, hey, hang on, you're already a man. You're already in a position of power where you can say that, whereas other people who are not often don't have a choice but to be political. So there is a repositioning of that, and Sherlock has to come to realize that his position of being apolitical might not be such a apolitical stance after all. That's also a political statement in in itself. That actually sounds interesting, because when I heard about this, I just thought Sherlock, popular, plus woman empowerment stories, popular, equals Netflix churn it out. Yeah, I I wish they'd explored this angle a bit more because the understanding how Sherlock's character in the books and repositioning his status is actually one of the more interesting things. But the childish mystery and the Alona Holmes thing is 
it, it is what it is. It's a Netflix movie after all. It's not that deep. But there is some good elements in there. When I saw this following the bad season of Sherlock and that Holmes Watson movie, my feeling was I don't want to see another Sherlock Holmes. And I love Sherlock Holmes. I read all the books. I don't want to see another Sherlock Holmes for another 10 years. I got the Jeremy Brett series. It's the best thing they've ever produced. And it's all I want. Does this offer enough new? Is it worth seeking out? I appreciate there's new novel elements to it, but... Still, it's, there's a lot of Sherlock um, inundation. It's less a mystery story and more an adventure story. It's more a quest narrative. So if you look at it that way, and it's also She's 16. So it's more targeted towards a younger, it's a coming fate story rather than just a mystery narrative. This is not someone who's at the height of their powers. They're still discovering who they are, who they want to be in the world. So there's a lot of that. And it's, it's, it's still more kind of a kid's mystery film. It kind of feels like an episode of Stranger Things, to be honest, in, in some ways rather than, you know, a out-and-out mystery film in that sense. It's less Sherlock, more fun mystery of a child discovering who they are. I am with Glenn in, in just feeling like, please no more Sherlock. <laughs> yeah, and, well, to be fair, it doesn't, it doesn't shoehorn Cavell Sherlock. He doesn't have that big a role to play. He's more of a cameo appearance. So, yeah. Okay, sure. And before we get to our next film, Milan, The Secret Garden. Right. Yeah, one more film. Brett liked much. Yeah, Brett liked it much less by the sounds of it. I, I, I like it less than Milan, which is not saying much. But wow. I don't know why this movie got made. The only reason I, I watched it was because it's for the prescribed text in high school. So I had very nostalgic memories of trying to watch it on the screen. And this movie is nothing that like I remember from the book. But also, it is so badly acted. It's got Colin Firth in it, and it's probably the worst Colin Firth performance, even worse than what he did in Mamma Mia. So, this is terrible. This is, he was so terrible in this film, which I was just like, I did not even think that you were capable of giving such a terrible performance. And he's sleepwalking like through the children are bad. The, the main story rests, obviously, on the children as a narrative. There is a matron-like figure played by Dolores Umbridge, the character who played Dolores Umbridge in the Harry Potter. Oh, oh God, what's her name? Um... The thing is, there was a quite good Secret Garden film made in the 90s by Agnieszka Holland. Which also had Colin Firth, surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's... Secret Garden film. Anyway, so this Dolores is not Umbridge on that. Uh, I'm forgetting her name. She still plays exactly a ditto Dolores Umbridge character in this. Uh, it is a copy they're really marketing this on, on the Harry Potter name. Yeah, very much so. Unfortunately, the children who are supposed to carry the film aren't likable or even good actors. It is all very hammy, very bad. The transition from British India to England took the setup was so long. It was 40 minutes before you even get into the story. And I was just like, why are we wasting so much time? before we get to the garden. The garden, though, yes, is magical. The magical realism is not that exciting. It, it doesn't even feel the same to wonder or you know, beauty like Narnia. So even when you get into the garden, it doesn't feel that magical. It just feels like a garden. So uh, unfortunately, there's nothing in this film that is supposed to evoke wonder, excitement, and positivity and hope. And beyond a certain point in time, it did kind of feel like tragedy porn. You know. How many orphans can we fit into a movie? It's like, oh my God, you were an orphan. You were an orphan. You were an orphan. Oh my God, my dad is dead. My mom is dead. It's like, okay, great. Fine. We get it. So anyway. Um, that's really sad. And 
I think it's good there are movies out there that address yeah, those sorts not, of issues because there's many lived experiences. As a right? manipulation of our emotional sort of you know emotional threads, and I felt very very. But deep. if it's but if it's not manipulation, it's just presenting a circumstance which many experience but not all one can relate to. Hold on though, I can easily see how this could be tragedy porn slash emotional manipulation. Same as how we use terminal illness in movies, right? There are ways to do it. There are ways not to do it. If the rest yeah. of the movie is terrible, I can totally buy that they drop the yeah. ball and it becomes like. His cry, like have hitting the note on the organ, like the tears. Yeah, it's tears that the children. That was Melda Staunton, by the way. Because you know, oh my God, you know, my 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 daddy doesn't love me, so I'm throwing a tantrum. It is it is very English preppy school, and it's so bad. It's just so bad. okay. Okay, so you can feel described as English preppy school is about the worst description you can give from my perspective. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> my curiosity I is gone. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's going to be playing at Shaw instead of their muck-up day shenanigans. So that is The Secret Garden. Yeah, I can't believe that's a story now. I, I, maybe it's because I grew up in the North Shore, but this has always been happening. God. Anyway, sorry. The Secret Garden in cinemas now. Let's talk about Mulan. Uh, do you guys have your Szechuan? Let's Mulan get down Szechuan to business. Sauce? Yeah, no Szechuan dipping sauce. I reckon McDonald's might have done this, but they didn't want to get mobbed by fans of Rick and Morty like they did last time and create a disaster area. The other thing is, don't, haven't Disney terminated their contract with McDonald's? Like, we're not going to do... I swear I read that somewhere. Like, we're not going to do junk food tie-ins anymore. Well, so maybe I'm, that's why. I'm, I'm glad Disney and their associations are all uh, straightforward and down pat. Oh, yeah, yeah, Because Milan, uh, you know, Milan doesn't have any negative associations that could have caused political controversy going on. Yeah. On the, yeah before we get into the actual film, I think it's more than worth noting this particular controversy which has beset the movie um i think that disney haven't addressed this is i get i think it'd be a serious loss they, they did address they did address it they have okay i'm sorry what was... they said uh that we filmed there the boards helped us film it's normal to film we have no involvement in the other stuff happening in Xinjiang, but it's normal to thank the government when they provide assistance for film to happen in anywhere else in the world we're not giving explicit condoning of them for any other reason and later on, they said in the shareholders thing, this film's caused a number of headaches for us that we didn't anticipate. They basically, in as many words, said we want to wash it out of our hair. So that's, that's basically their, their comment. But I think them not saying that explicitly will be a huge loss of faith for a lot of people. Yeah, their, their only comment on the Xinjiang stuff was, um, we're not saying we approve of everything the government does. We're just giving a standard thanks because we filmed in these locations and government provide, you know, allows for filming. It happens everywhere in the world. That's what they said. So, Mulan, this is the remake of the, or a new version of the classic story, and it's very heavily of the 90s animated version. It stars Yifei Lui, excuse me if I mispronounced her name, Donnie Yen, Li Gong, Jet Li, and um, a number of others. Cheng Pei Pei, man. She was Jade Fox in Crouching Tiger, and she was great. And here she's wasted in like one scene as like the matron who helps Mulan get married. Anyway. So, yeah, a lot of people are wasted in this movie. It, it is does not help Mulan get married. Of the young woman who, instead of having her father go off as the male of the family and fight in the Weekend Scripted, she pretends to be a man and goes to fight. And it's her experience of self-realization and actualization as worrying as a person, but also struggling to not be perceived as a woman given the time. One note from what you were saying before we move on, Glenn was, was sort of saying like it's a new take on the tale and then also it's like drawing on the animated version and I think that speaks to the strange identity crisis of this film. 
because on one hand, it's part of Disney's slew of live action remakes and it does recreate scenes from the original film, like the scene with Chang Pei Pei as the matron trying to get uh, Mulan married and the spider coming down from the roof, right? It's a live action remake, but it's also been made to appease the Chinese market. So they've cut aspects and added new aspects that they think will appeal more to that market and that audience. And so it's kind of just all over the place and ends up having no soul and no character, which is getting into the review side of it. So back to you, Glenn. Yes. Um, as a broad characterization of the film, it relies on, like the Lion King remake, it relies on you having seen the original Mulan, but absent any of the numbers, I, I don't have an issue with the form. It's okay that it's unlike in a musical, but the story beats and the what we was teased out through Become a Man and some of the great songs, they don't have equivalent arcs or moments of discussions in the film. It's just individual moments that they just slide through. They, they expect you to be aware of this because they're coasting on it because they know you've seen these beats happen in Milan years before. The one song that I recognized in the original score was Reflection that kept going on. I don't know Mulan that well. It's been ages since I've seen it. But yeah, the thing that really, from. yeah, the thing that really stands out in my mind that I love and that speaking to people, I think a lot of people from my generation love is the Be A Man song. It's brilliant. Well, yeah, and that whole sequence is hilarious, well choreographed. The song is incredibly catchy and it's just not here. Instead, we've got that. I wish Let's they didn't have anything. Instead, we've got this. a guy saying, I'm going to make you all men. And like a few shots of people like choreographed twirling the sticks or whatever. That's it. I did a parody of that song in a review once. It was about the mitzvah. It was Become a Man. We had oh, so much God. fun. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was tacky and hilarious as it sounds. Um, like before we get into the many things bad about this movie, I'd like to actually talk about what I liked about it. I thought that might be nice. Okay. Um, there's some gorgeous. Nice is the word. <laughs> There's, there's some gorgeous production design, um, whether it's the costuming or the set design, a lot of it, particularly opening sequences, are very, very good. Yeah, I, I'll have to respond to you, Glenn. The costuming and the set, set design, I'm sorry. I think I, I'm going to take issues with that. There is um, some inconsistency in terms of the historical accuracy, but I've been to Xi'an. It's a beautiful, stunning city, as is the rest of China. China is a very beautiful place. And to see the historical recreation of Xi'an was beautiful, as were the many landscapes that we saw throughout this film. China is a, has stunning scenery, and it was beautifully photographed to the film's great credit. Um, always to say, while a lot of the action scenes were lousily shot, and there was some not so great choreography, there was some very good choreography and some very good action sequences and fight scenes. Oh, that's debatable. Were there actually any good action scenes? There were a few. I, I would say, say that the, the, the individual, the training sequence where she's fighting the fellow just showing what she's capable of, there were a couple that were, oh, this, this is interesting, this is engaging. And it also plays out as character beats that I liked. They've spent the money on good choreography, but I felt like the action, as you said, it's so badly shot. It's so choppy. Early on in the film, you notice the bit where she's a kid and she slides down, she falls so that she can show off how incredibly skilled she is. And it's, it just looks laughable. That was bad. This thing cost $200 million. Virat just made a comment before about how bad the costuming and, and set design is. Yeah. Virat, you, you wanted to challenge me on, the, on some yeah, aspects I mean, of the production. I'm, 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 I'm glad that you found the costumes to be, to be nice and pleasant to look at, but I felt they were quite tacky. I felt they were picked up from a thrift shop. It, it just felt that they didn't do justice to, firstly, the regalness of what the characters were supposed to represent. They kind of felt quite common and it was very hard to believe. And even how the makeup was done, it felt like it was overdone and it was kind of caricaturation, kind of insulting because it felt clownish. 
I think this goes to what I was saying before about the identity crisis of is this a new version of Mulan or is this a live action of the cartoon? Because some of the makeup cues are taken from the cartoon and in live action, it looks ridiculous. Uh, um, yeah. So yeah. yeah, actually, this is a good time for me to reveal that I have never actually seen the animated version of this film. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. This was a pretty big staple of our childhoods. I felt bad when in 2012 I hadn't seen it and my partner's like, wait a minute, you haven't seen Mulan? You maybe sit down and watch it? Nice. And it was great. So I, I've only seen it all the way through once, but it sits very strongly in my memory. Yeah. I, I will just say that the, the budget has not been spent well. Isn't filming in China cheap? Like, <laughs> how did this cost $200 million? I've read cheap. It looks cheap all over the place. Like everything looks cheap. I, I is it just that Nikki Caro is not used to funding on that level? She's never directed a big budget film like this before and, and just doesn't know how to spend it well? I'm not sure. I've written in my notes here, crass, tacky looking version of Yumu. They are clearly aping the cinematography style of Yumu's big woozier spectacles like Shadow, Curse of the Golden Flower, House of Flying Daggers, Hero right? Especially here. There's a lot of very direct homages to House of Flying Daggers. Yeah, but it does not look nearly as good as those films looked, and they were made for a much cheaper budget. But I think those were shot in not just more naturalistic settings, but the key thing that has, look, there are a lot of landscape bits in this, but there's not, there's sweeping landscapes that you can't really interact with. House of Flying Daggers was great because it was set in naturalistic environments like forests, where the environment became a necessary part of whether it was the obstacles or people had to interact with. Here, it's just 2D is two, it's two big D. open plans person and then there's the beautiful landscape behind them but the action direction doesn't make use of practical obstructions or else except for the last scene which is really awkwardly staged it's really choppy just things with the choreography like the way they um witch at so oh man the witch yes we're gonna, we're gonna get into the witch that's how they refer to the other substantive female character the witch. yeah the witch um uses it's actually the good guy by the way yeah the, the witch uses like this banner to like hit people and like tie people up, drag them in the air and pull them down. But it's just things like you could have staged that in a way that looks cool. Like, yes, it's not a thing that naturally that happens in nature that you can like hold a banner and swing someone into the air. But no, there's no physics in the Snow White films. Yeah, they haven't been bothered to render the physics of like this guy getting like whipped into the air then pulled down. So it looks like the banner has become, even though it's flowing flo like a banner, in its motion, it's become like a long stick. Like she just lifts it into the air, then immediately as she starts pulling it down, the guy flies down. There's no like delay. There's no being whipped. The whole production is just amateurish in those ways. Like just basic details are not being taken into account. Same as the physics when at the beginning, Mulan slides oh, down the banister. She yeah. looks like a stiff doll. It's probably that in the end of the worst moments in the film for me. Yeah, it's just a, a lazy production. It seems like it was designed for Disney Plus and cost $25 million. But even how the cuts are positioned in the action choreography is just doesn't make any sense. Because there are some sequences where you feel like, oh, you know, that person is in midair. And then you would try to follow trajectory as you're like, this person should now be here in this shot. And they're not there. They're in fact in a completely different space in their spatial choreography. And you're like, how did that, like, this doesn't make any sense. And it just It's disastrous like as an action movie. Yeah. Um, the, the scene of the pylons is bad. Um, several of the broad or early stage shows was good. Some of the stunts involving the horses was, were entertaining. And there was the one fight scene I referred to earlier, but a lot of it is just all over the place and just, and, and lacking perspective of how the action interacts. The whole thing was all over the place, but we're about to get into the, sort of the characters in this, right? 
I'm, I'm just reminded because we were talking about the, the beginning where she slides down the banister. The way it starts is like, you see Mulan as a kid. I'm not sure why the whole bit of her being a kid is in the movie. All it establishes is something that is um, really detrimental to her ever being interesting as a character, which is that she was always amazing. Um, right. you, yeah, you see her as a kid doing some incredible X-Men stunt. She's Spider-Man. And then that she's chasing some CG rabbits as an adult. Now she's an adult now. Like, right. why, why did we feature that in the film? Why is that there? I thought if you're going to have a prologue, you need to reveal something to like justify why there's a prologue. It was just like this script has had no time or thought put into it is how it feels. Now, the reason this is really bad, and I think the bit worst thing in the film for me, what I liked about the original Mulan, unlike a lot of other Disney films, and particularly Disney princess films, a lot of other movies to boot generally, is that it's a story of someone who was not come from anywhere of particular note and was special, but showed by her acumen and hard drive and work that she became special. Here, she was shown to be always special. Disney princess just had to actualize herself. There's a very clear difference in the arcs, and it's why... The Last Jedi is good and The Rise of Skywalker is bad. In well, The Last Jedi, Rey came from nowhere and was caused to be someone and had to go through that arc. In The Rise of Skywalker, she finds, oh no, you were someone all along. You just had to realize it. It's a bad movie by comparison and Disney have gone in that direction with Mulan. It's hugely disappointing that they're um, rehashing these sorts of arcs time look, again. And The Last Jedi approach, like the original Mulan approach, is so much more interesting. To tie this into the Star Wars thing more, lots of people have said Rey is a Mary Sue. Mulan is a Mary Sue. She's nothing interesting about her except that she's perfect. She was born perfect. She's always been amazing. Stefan, when we interviewed him for Sydney Underground Film Festival a couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure if this was on or off air, but he made an interesting point about it that he'd heard people discussing this film in terms of the narratives that are being favored in China right now and the sleeping tiger kind of narrative with the idea of like, oh, I've always been good. Wait till you see my awakened powers. I think that they're trying to appeal to that plot structure which has been prevalent in a lot of chinese big spectacle filmmaking and storytelling lately to be clear though i don't think ray was a uh, mary sue in the last jedi but we digress um i agree with chris's effort on this i think it's just a less interesting arc on the matter also of milan just as a side on the production design in the animation when she cut her hair and else and set herself up as one of the soldiers you could buy just because of the form here i'm reminded of that scene in the second season of game of thrones where tywin lannister goes to harren hall and Arya is in disguise as a young boy and tywin just looks at her and says looks at his soldiers and says you idiots that's a girl and i expected this to happen at like every <laughs> single moment in this movie and it did it and it made no sense because they've cast a really beautiful woman as milan and they've Put him up against these really manly looking people. I think they should have had like kind of soft feminine looking guys to sell the illusion. Yeah, that would have made a lot more sense. But um, no, the casting, the design, the in this case, the makeup and costume design just didn't work. It's just fundamentally though a boring movie because you've got a character who has really no growth except, oh, deciding I must not lie now um, because I've been told that the lying part of me was killed by a witch. And what is the selling thing of this plot? Like, what, what the linchpin is like, you must defend the emperor, right? And maybe a Chinese audience would take that for a given. But didn't you come in here thinking like the emperor seems like not such a nice guy? Did you get okay. that sense? Like, like, I don't like the emperor. This is the second worst thing about the movie. So <laughs> the, the whole thing is, okay, the only other female character is referred to as the witch. She's established as her, her motivating factor is, I hate the patriarchy. I hate how I've been mistreated and I want a more open society. Which the Mulan, Huns are going to give her when they become the, the rulers of China. 
yeah, Milan, the state of hero is, no, I, I know that I'm actually, as per the plot of this film, oppressed in this patriarchal system, but I'm still going to defend it. Now, I've why would the Bond to identify the with the quote-unquote witch? It seems to me that she's got a little more switched on in terms of what's good and bad. Yeah. Film. Yeah, and also Gong Li is such a great actress, and she just has nothing to do here. She doesn't. She have like some of the only, like one the dad and the matchmaker and stuff in the beginning are good. But once you get into the bulk of this, there's no good actors except for Gong Li. So whenever the witch is on screen, it's like, can the witch become important and convince Mulan to fight against the emperor? The witch, God, the witch. But yeah, um, the whole movie is just kind of lifeless, right? Like, there's nothing funny or dramatic or exciting. It's I remember laughing. Except ironically. There's, there's no charm. There's no interesting characters. There's no romance that you get swept up in. There's just nothing. It's oh, yeah, just, the romance was... They, they had no chemistry. Yeah, it's just a dead-looking movie. It's just a dead-feeling movie. When I say that the Emperor doesn't seem like a nice guy, what we see of the Emperor is like, Emperor, you must go and fight this, this Hun. It's like, yes, I will kill him with my bare hands like I did his father. Jesus, like, this is the guy we have to swear our, our life's loyalty to. It sounds like the Huns actually had some arguments going with him. It's like, okay, you, your father was pretty brutally murdered by these folks. Okay, is there a reason to not be okay with them? Yeah, but it's Disney morality. You're supposed to just go, oh yeah, the, this guy, the Huns are evil because they look bad. Actually, that's another thing. The same thing that I hate about The Lion King in that facial scars code bad. This guy has a lot of facial scars and therefore he's bad. He's given no other reason to be bad except he doesn't like the establishment figure of the movie and he has scars. I have a facial scar. I'm sensitive about it. And apparently that makes me a bad guy at a Disney movie. And that bothers me. Hey, dude. So, yeah, yeah. It's. Oh, sorry. We, we, yeah, this is radio, but just take our word for it, guys. We have um, scars, which is why Film Fight Club is such an evil show. It's okay. Where the detractors, we yeah. Scars. We have emotional scars. It's all true. Yep. Yeah. On which, why is this movie so loved by critics? It makes no sense to me. Oh like, yeah, I mean, like, I appreciate this diversity of opinion, but having such a high score on the various forums makes yeah. no sense. This film does not have that many, if at all, redeeming features. 75% Rotten Tomatoes score, meaning 75% of critics gave this a 3 out of 5 or above. The Metacritic score is 67 out of 100. 67, 6.7 out of 10 is a high score. That's nearly 7 out of 10. That's definitely in the good category. This film is bad in every department. This is more like uh, a 2 out of 10. Yeah, it's like a three, maybe. Do people think that they have to give Disney a good review because it's got a female director and it's about a woman being empowered? Is it? Is it? I just, think it's about a woman being oppressed. Looking at the quote-unquote witch. I agree. If you look at what's, what it's actually saying, it's not positive at all. This film is not politically good in any way, from the Xinjiang government thanks in the credits um, to the the dumb way that it cheapens Chinese history and culture, as well as recent filmmaking culture in a, a tacky, <laughs> Americanized Happy Meal version of it. Through this to film the, should have been in Mandarin. I would have loved oh, to watch yeah. a film in Mandarin with subtitles, gladly. Yeah, through, through to the dumb way that it approaches feminist themes. And yet, because it's been sold as something that politically we should embrace, it feels like people are just going, yep, 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 good review. Like, as Glenn said, I appreciate that 
there are different opinions. And often I find myself on the opposite side of the overwhelming critical consensus. And I'm okay with that. I accept that my taste can be a bit strange. Sometimes I come across as a contrarian or whatever. But the thing is that this film is so obviously amateurish and it's not just us. Everyone I've spoken to who's seen the film dislikes it. And I've noticed online also that the general audience who aren't necessarily big movie fans also hate it. Everyone hates it. I watched it with the critics people, are out of touch. And we've been anticipating for a while and our response was just, that was it? We waited mm. six months for this? And it's not about an anticipation. It's just, there's a standard of it. While there might be not a standard of the quality of storytelling of all these major Disney productions, there's a standard of the production design that even the Lion King had, and it's absent here. It may be one of the worst these action adaptations. If we're going to give Disney all this money, the least they could do is put some of it back on, on the screen, which apparently they did, but they didn't have people who knew how to manage it. It's just bad in every way. It's terrible. That's Milan. It will cost you $43 and it's now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Um, the Secret Garden is now in cinemas and Enola Holmes is streaming on Netflix. We'll be back next week with the new Sofia Coppola film. Yeah. Which you're very curious about. Yeah. Uh, you can contact us to tell us stuff to talk about if we run out of ideas at facebook.com slash film fight club. Caved or, in Dimbalon. Yeah. Or twitter.com slash film fight club AU. By the way, how bad was the lead actress's Mulan? I just did not warm to her ever. Uh, she was for me a step above possible. Oh yeah, I'll pay that. Yeah. So have a wonderful night when you're listening. Enjoy movies, stay safe, and pick a fight with us anytime. Good night. Bye. Good night.